all about the former as opposed to the latter. Today, we're going to be taking on Songs of Love and Hate, the third studio album by Leonard Cohen. It was produced by Bob Johnston and was released on March 19, 1971 on Columbia Records. The album reached 145 on the U.S. Billboard 200, but was his most commercially successful album in many other parts of the world. On the other mic today is a writer and scientist who blogs at partneranally.com and podcasts at Shapeshifter Radio. He is also the first person I met in Poland. Please welcome Derek Victor. Do you realize we met 15 years ago, probably around this time of year? Because it doesn't seem like that long ago since Christian and I left you stranded at the National Arrivals Gate in Wrocław because we assumed you'd be on an international flight. Eh, gave me a chance to smoke an extra cigarette while I waited for you guys to get your heads out of your asses. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining the show. And Derek, tell me, how did this album enter your life? Well, both of my parents like Leonard Cohen, and all of the albums were in their record collection. You know, I knew Leonard Cohen's face because the album cover would be lying there and the music would be playing, but I was too young to actually connect with the music until maybe my early teens. And then at that point, I really started to enjoy it. I liked songs of Leonard Cohen. I liked songs from a room, both of which both my parents liked. But uh, Songs of Love and Hate was very controversial in our house because my father loved it, but my mother really did not. Um, she went as far as to say that she hated it, which is fun. Songs of Love and Hate. My father loves them. My mother hates them. Um, <laughs> when I was a teenager, Songs of Leonard Cohen was probably my favorite Leonard Cohen album, but it really flipped in my late 20s. I was badly injured. I got a spinal cord injury. And after that spinal cord injury, I was listening to the album again, and I suddenly got it. I suddenly connected with it. And it actually felt like it had been there all my life, but I I had never noticed it. It's almost like one of those rom-coms when, you know, my best friend who was always there, but I, I never realized that I loved them <laughs> kind of moment. <laughs> And now it's my favorite Leonard Cohen album. I was introduced to Leonard Cohen through the Christian Slater film, Pump Up the Volume. He has an underground radio show, and the theme song for that show was Everybody Knows. And I was just, I was mesmerized by the movie, and I was really just mesmerized by that song. And I kind of realized he was an old folk singer, but I didn't realize at the time how contemporary that song actually was. And I had ordered the soundtrack, not knowing that the Leonard Cohen version was not on the soundtrack, but the Concrete Blonde version. And so it took me a little while to actually get back to where I should have been with Leonard Cohen. A friend of mine had I'm Your Man, and all they talked about was how really terrible Jazz Police was. And just through <laughs> roundabout ways, I eventually got the live album when I was working at my college radio station, and I really enjoyed that, and then probably picked up maybe that second greatest hits package. And then uh, a friend of mine had bought the first greatest hits package, not realizing how completely different old Leonard Cohen was to current Leonard Cohen. And he didn't really like it. And so he gave it to me and my mind was just blown. I loved that record so much and then went out and just bought everything that I could. And the nice thing about Leonard Cohen is he doesn't have a very intimidating catalog. And so I was able to get just about everything. And this album just really spoke to me. I was working for a local record store, so I was having a great time, even though I was underemployed. 
Uh, I was in a fairly new relationship and that was going really well at the time. And despite all the good things going on in my life, I was listening to really depressing music, but I was not really depressed. <laughs> and I still have a great deal of affection for a lot of the albums I was listening to roughly from 1999 till about 2003. Uh, and not just this new stuff that was coming out, but a lot of the stuff I was listening to at the time, like Johnny Cash and Leonard Cohen and Tom Waits. And uh, even though they had some contemporary stuff as well, I was I was listening to a lot of that. When I started making the list to do this program, a lot of albums from that time kept popping up. So I don't consider this to be my absolute favorite album anymore, but this spent a lot of time as my favorite. Uh, one of the things I've been exploring with this podcast, at least for this uh, these first two seasons, are the album openers. I have it down to four different ones. There's the call to action, there's the blueprint, there's the setup, and the teaser. So starting with side one, track one, Avalanche. For me, this is a blueprint opener. I find the guitar to be captivating. Uh, The string section, especially the cello parts, are just, they're enveloping. The way he sings it affects me. Um, It's definitely my favorite song on the album. Uh, maybe my favorite Leonard Cohen song, and Leonard Cohen is my favorite musician. Um, so this is an all-time song for me, for sure. It can almost be too intense at times. Uh, I have listened to this song and then needed to listen to something else to to calm down. Almost like watching a horror film, and then before you go to bed, watching a comedy just to <laughs> kind of clear out your mind. You know, if I'm by myself and listening to this on headphones, it, it can almost be too much. Uh, the the lyrics really uh, the, the lyrics just really get to me even though I don't always know what he's talking about I don't know if I've fully figured this song out you know, I've talked a lot about how I'm not necessarily a lyrics person with a lot of the things that I listen to uh, Leonard Cohen is the big exception there I just I love him as a lyricist but I could probably go on for too long about this uh, particular song Derek what are your thoughts on Avalanche? Well, can I ask you a question first? Sure. Are you a religious person? No, I'm an atheist. Me too. I, I think it's interesting that you say it's essentially an all-time favorite because it's an all-time favorite for me as well. But uh, a lot of analyses of the lyrics suggest that it's a very religious song. And if you just read them, you can see that there is there is something of a someone's conflict with their own religion in the lyrics of it. And when someone said that to me, when I when I heard that and kind of went back and looked at the song, I said, you're right. And I never, I never saw that on my own, which I'm glad about because I don't think I would have connected with the song if I had previously dismissed it as someone struggling with their spirituality because that rarely interests me. And because I hadn't been told that or hadn't been exposed to that idea, I was able to find my own connection with the song, which really, this is the song that post spinal cord injury, I suddenly rediscovered in a completely different way. A lot of the lyrics spoke to me because at the time I was struggling with the fact that I was no longer connecting with my own body, reconnecting with aspects of my sort of mind and my way of interacting with the world that that I was being forced to kind of discover new ways of interacting with the world um, that were very cerebral because I couldn't be physical at the time. Immediately after the, the SCI, I was 
really very weak and I couldn't manage anything. And I was living in an apartment in a building with no elevator and I wasn't on the ground floor. So I, I was very restricted. And so lines like the cripple here that you clothe and feed is neither starved nor cold. He does not ask for your company, not at the center, the center of the world. I, I kind of saw myself in that. I saw myself as crippled. I saw myself as needing all this help from people that I didn't necessarily want them to be there. I didn't want their help, but I needed it. But I kind of rejected that need. Uh, and similarly, your pain is no credential here. It's just a shadow, a shadow of my wound. That that same kind of thing that, you know, that those feelings really spoke to me. And there was times when I couldn't listen to the song without welling up and crying. And there was times when I would listen to it and it would invigorate me. In my memory, it's this growled emotional song. It's 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 kind of aggressive. But whenever I re-listen to it, I I get I suddenly realize, oh no, it starts with this whisper. When he says I stepped into an avalanche, it's 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 not growled. It's not aggressive. It's very quiet. It's a very quiet beginning to the album. I agree with you that it's a blueprint of what to expect because it is that um, self-examination and and that kind of self-reflection, but it's it's it starts so quietly with that strumming repetition and the guitar coming in like a bell and that whispered voice. And then as he goes deeper into it, that that little growl starts to come in that we're familiar with. Yeah, I, I cannot listen to this song without a chill. And I cannot listen to this song without going, now I'm going to listen to the whole album. It comes up on shuffle and I'm like, nope, nope, stop, stop everything. <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard any of the covers of this song? I'm familiar with two. Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, of course, did it. And just recently, uh, Ghost, I think just last year, covered it. Are you familiar with either of those? I haven't heard the second one. I have heard Nick Cave's cover. And while I think he does an interesting reinterpretation of it musically, I find that he starts in a, a, a place that's not quiet enough to let the power of the song build. It's almost like he comes in at a at a nine and stays at a nine, whereas if he'd come in at a five, he could have built to that nine and it would have been more powerful. I agree. Uh, one of my biggest problems with that song has always been just the way he sings that opening line. And of course, the production on that's pretty rough as well. The sound's pretty uneven. But, you know, it's a powerful song and it's always fun to hear other people interpret it, even if uh, Nick Caves is not my favorite version of that song. Let's go ahead and move on to track two, Last Year's Man. What do you think about this one, Derek? When I was younger, I thought this song was about suicide. I, I saw Last Year's Man as having killed himself at his desk because he was no longer relevant or no longer powerful. And again, with my mother's prejudice about the album and my own prejudice kind of inherited from her, I didn't like it. I, I never investigated it more. 
Um, but then when I rediscovered the album, I completely changed my opinion about this one as well. I feel like it's about peaking, like you've, you've peaked and it's only downhill from here and you can't go further or higher or about giving up on something and moving on. And it was that sense of moving on, that sense of going, I'm done, that really spoke to me and really like, uh, again, because of the timing of things, there was something about that idea of it's okay to peak and move on. It's okay to give up and move on that really, I really appreciated. It's a quiet song. There's something very rhythmic about it. There's something quite hypnotic about how he speaks, sings it. And then those additional childish voices, which like contrasting that childish vocal with darker imagery is really interesting to me um, and kind of sustains the song uh, throughout um, because emotionally it climaxes in the middle. Interestingly, the song kind of has a, has a peak in it around that moment when they're talking about Bethlehem and Babylon as lovers of the singer and that very sexual moment. It's the most energetic moment of the song, but it's not towards the end. It's right in the middle. And then it kind of starts to go downhill. And by the time it gets to the end, where uh, everything could happen if he would only give the word, it's, it's back to being just this slow, hypnotic kind of thing. So, yeah, I, I, I find it quite fascinating. And I, I think it's the perfect second song for Avalanche because Avalanche is so powerful. You need something that's a bit slower, a bit more kind of rhythmic, that kind of pulls you further into the album. So that's, that's, that's my feeling. It, it, it's a great song but I totally changed my opinion about it. It's interesting that you can hear uh, different songs at different times in your life and interpret them differently. Uh, I didn't really have a background growing up with Leonard Cohen like you did, so I don't have that familial connection. Uh, and it's kind of fun that you can look back and see things differently. And of course I say fun because we're talking about a spinal cord injury. <laughs> uh, sorry about that. Anyway, uh, when you had mentioned earlier that uh, this is an album you reinterpreted post-accident, uh, the first thing I thought of was Avalanche and how that was a song that would really be able to speak to you after that. And hadn't really thought about this one. Uh, probably because I never really think about this song. This is one that's never made a mix. Uh, I don't think I've ever even put this on like a Leonard Cohen compilation. Uh, but for me, I see this song as this is where he saw where his career was. He got started a little bit older. I think he was already 30 by the time he put out his first record. And this was during an era when you weren't supposed to trust anybody over the age of 30. And I think the second album was okay, but uh, in some cases it felt like he was maybe running out of gas. And with this song, it's, you know, it's, it's about simple tools. You know, I think he mentions crayons. Uh, he's got unfinished plans. It's just yesterday's news. It's even in the title. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, the name is outdated. Uh, and maybe he's just uh, no longer the cool guy on the record label anymore. And that's how I've always seen it. Mm. I like that. I like that interpretation. 
Do you think one of the reasons you've never put it on a mixtape is because it needs Avalanche and Dress Rehearsal Rag to make it make sense? It needs to be the hypnotic, quieter song between those two uh, extremely emotional songs. I guess while that is a possibility, it just really comes down to that uh, this is a song that just doesn't grab me. And there's a lot of Leonard Cohen songs that grab me. Uh, you know, if you're going to make a mix, you're going to choose the best of the best. And this just isn't the best of the best. I mean, it's, it is a good song. It's a great song in the context of the album. It does bridge that gap. Uh, so let's just go ahead and move on to track three, Dress Rehearsal Rag. And this one feels almost claustrophobic to me. Uh, the instrumentation going on in the background, you know, there's strings and horns. Uh, but in the forefront is the guitar with maybe his simplest strumming and he's beating those strings like it's a rented guitar. <laughs> uh, you know, we had a you know, really fancy stuff going on in the first song. And, and it's also his loudest vocal so far on the record. Uh, it's not what his voice would become, but it's a lot closer to what we would expect it to be. Uh, what about you, Derek? What do you think about Dress Rehearsal Rag? Dress Rehearsal Rag is aggressively self-loathing. It's aggressively derisive. Uh, there's an anger at the body, which again, and not to harp on the same topic, at the point when I rediscovered the record, anger at my own body was right up there in my emotions. So I kind of connected to that. But it's punctuated, all of that aggressive self-loathing is punctuated by these quiet moments that are somewhere between resignation and acceptance kind of okay i i have all this this hatred to what i'm seeing in the mirror i have all this suicidal ideation but at the same time you know maybe there is a way out of this and 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 maybe there's maybe if i just try one more time so those highs of 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 self-loathing and 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 quiet moments of of resignation i i think creates a very interesting image of someone staring at themselves those take a look at your body now there's nothing much to save uh, that's that line just stands out in the song for me i like his his moment where he echoes Emily Dickinson with the funeral in the mirror, like the feeling a funeral in my brain. And then that final line, which just mocks all of the emotion. I think this is also the song that starts to get comedic, which is important because I think that comedy has to be brought in here for Diamonds in the Mind to work. So talking about those coupons you can cut out, covering up your face with soap there. Now you're Santa Claus. Like that little elements of of comedy in despair. There's something almost British sitcom about it. You know, let, let's laugh at the person who's about to commit suicide. I really like it. I like the aggressive energy of it. And I, I like those highs and lows that it has. And I like the way the end of it just undermines the whole thing by saying, no, no, it wasn't really someone looking in the mirror and, and, and having suicidal ideation. 
it was just like a stuntman. It's just a dress rehearsal. Nothing's bad is going to happen. I, I really enjoy that. And calling it a rag, like rag week. Yeah, brilliant song. Yeah, he gives you the uh, title and the ending, but you don't quite realize it until you get there, which is uh, which is clever. I had a question for you, but I lost it. So uh, uh, let's move on to uh, Diamonds in the Mine. What are your thoughts here? This is pure comedy. This is actually really funny. And it, listening to this was the first time, listening to this in my late 20s was the first time that I appreciated how funny he could be. And then I started to see those moments of comedy on other albums and in other songs as well. There's something of like a body drunk in this song. It reminds me a little of um, the Dubliners singing Take Me Up to Monto or the Pogues singing uh, The Irish Rover. Uh, That Irish, and um, maybe it's because I'm Irish, I see it that way just that Irish thing of, of loudly, mockingly singing an off-color song in a bar. From the instruments to that ragged extension of the vowels, like how he says eating with that long extension of the E sound, or the growling of the letters, like which just really... Yeah, the, that's the growling voice we'll, we, we always think he has, but this is where it really comes through. The way he mocks fertility with all of those really off-color analogies, like, and that viciousness to end the first side, which the first side starts so powerfully with avalanche and goes through these ideas that could be suicide, that could be about resignation, that could be about not being able to go further and then it comes to this song about infertility and impotence that belongs in a bar with a sticky floor and where they still smoke. I just It's such an amazing way to end because it, it has that element of the release of laughter. Okay, I've made you tense and now I'm going to give you this to laugh at so you can you can relax for a minute while you flip the record. So again, it's become a favorite of mine, but it's become a favorite of mine because it's so funny. That's what I wanted to mention in song three, uh, talking about how just the way he sprinkles these jokes in and you may not get them or uh, even realize that they're there, you know, the first hundred times that you hear it, but then suddenly it'll just, it'll unlock and you're like, oh, that's funny. Okay, he's just fucking with us. Okay. Uh, And he kind of hints at this previously, like you said, in track three and a little bit here and there. But uh, this is really where it comes, where you can see it. So he ends the side uh, with a a much more upbeat approach uh, musically, if not lyrically. You know, and it has this bubbling bass and the backup singers and this needling guitar. And uh, this is the first song that sounds a bit dated, uh, that it sounds like it was recorded in the 1970s. And I, I don't mean that in a bad way, but where everything else is more of that folk sound to it. This is the first time it's like, OK, this is this is a, a 1970s song. Uh, and these are his most animated vocals on this and maybe several other records combined. Uh, And it certainly keeps the first half from becoming suffocating. After those first three tracks, if you end end this album 
uh, in that same vein, you may not have enough strength to get up off the couch to flip the record over. <laughs> uh, sounded like you wanted to uh, add something here. Well, just when you were saying that, it reminded me of um, Hannah Gadsby talking about how comedy lets you off the hook. And when you were saying about, would you have the will to get out of your chair, maybe to flip the record over if you didn't have this this moment of diamonds in the mind to let you off the hook of thinking about all of those difficult things that Avalanche, Last Year's Man, and Dress Rehearsal Rag have stirred up. So I, I kind of, yeah, I think it had to end like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it did. So that brings us to the end of side one. And before we get to side two of Songs of Love and Hate from Leonard Cohen on I Fucking Love This Record with my guest Derek Victor, uh, before we move on, uh, tell us a little bit more about your blog. So Partner and Ally is something that I started when my wife started to transition. Uh, When we met, when we got engaged, when we got married, she was living a life and expressing her gender as male because she was assumed male at birth. And during our relationship, she came to the realization that a lot of the struggles that she'd had in life were because uh, she is in fact a trans woman. She's a woman. She's always been a woman who was assumed to be a man. And that, of course, when she started her social transition, a lot of people were like, oh, well, I guess that's your relationship over because, you know, Derek is a gay man and Veronica is a woman, so that's not going to work. And that wasn't the position that Veronica and I were coming from. We got married because we loved each other for the, you know, all of the things about us. And gender expression is just one of those things. So I realized that a lot of trans people in relationships and a lot of partners of trans people when the transition happens during a relationship, go through a lot of challenges around social things. And and I wondered if there were resources out there to help those partners. And that encouraged me to start the blog. So partner of a trans person and ally of the trans community. And then because I'm a person with disabilities, I've been a wheelchair user for 21 years, ever since I was uh, actually assaulted. Um, that's how I got the spinal cord injury, was in an assault. I realized that Veronica is also a partner and ally in an unusual kind of relationship because she is the partner of a person with disabilities and an ally to the disabled community. So it, it kind of became... Uh, a blog that was about both sides of that, trying to sort of put some ideas out there about how uh, how being in a relationship with a person who's transitioning works, the kind of questions that come up, but also how being in a relationship with someone who has a disability works and the kind of questions that come up. Uh, the moment I'm writing a post that's about um, how she feels dealing with a change in my medication regime that has left me feeling drunk for the last four weeks. 
Uh, so I've been operating as if I'm constantly between my fourth and fifth beers. And uh, that's a lot for her to deal with. Um, on the other hand, she had top surgery this year, uh, which I already blogged about how it felt to be in the waiting room, waiting for your partner to come out of surgery. And, you know, so it was, it was, it, it's mostly a resource, but I think it's also quite good for both of us to, to put some of these things down on, you know, black and white and, and look at them and think about them. I think it's helping us. And I hope that someone out there also gets something out of it. Uh, so as you said, it's partner-and-ally.com. Yeah, I'm hoping to continue it for a long time as we as we go through her transition together. Well, I wish you the best of luck with all that. Uh, uh, anybody out there who's listening who may find uh, some voice that they need takes uh, the time to check it out. And you got to definitely check out the cartoons as well. The comics are great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Before we go on to side two, I have a question for you. Sure. When you made a mixtape for your wife, because I'm sure you did, which Leonard Cohen song or songs did you put on it? Ooh, um... Well, I've definitely made her uh, Leonard Cohen compilation uh, that she had in the car for a long time. And my son would uh, just shout out the number he would want to hear uh, of the song that he wanted to have played. I'm pretty sure I put Here It Is from 10 New Songs. Uh, while that's not my favorite album by him, uh, Here It Is is a pretty sexy song. Uh, and I definitely put Waiting for a Miracle on a comp that I had called um, Where Did the Night Go? That's appropriate. I like that. I like that choice. Thanks for that. That's a great question. So let's go ahead and get started on side two. We're with track five, Love Calls You By Your Name. Uh, he opens his side by playing a, a similar guitar style as he did on Avalanche, but to much calmer effect. Though I kind of run out of steam with this one. Uh, now, I really listened to this one on CD for the most part to begin with, and then uh, on digital. And while I do own this album on vinyl, it's not one that I've listened to a ton on vinyl. And so I don't have that, let's say, mental get up and flip. It is a nice reset. And uh, if you would have finished side one with this song, uh, you know, you would have had a nice dovetail effect with the guitar. Uh, but would you ever be able to get up off the couch and flip it over? I don't have a, a whole lot more to say about this. Uh, what about you? Well, I actually inherited my father's vinyl copy of this and it's pretty much the only way I end up listening to it because I don't have a digital version so I always have to flip the record and there's always that moment of putting it back down knowing that this starts off so gently and so quietly and the music has this pleasantness to it and the title of the song has this pleasantness to it it's kind of a deceptively quiet start to the second side and i think that really works when you flip after diamonds in the mine you have that moment to breathe and then starts you back in gently and his voice seems to almost caress the words which also conjures up this pleasant image until you listen to the words themselves because there's a lot of very unpleasant imagery in the song the ocean and your open vein, the victim and his stain, the dancer and his cane. And there's a bitterness to those vein, stain, cane, those words that 
kind of rhyme with name. They're often sung in a very bitter way with the vowels unnaturally extended in a similar way to the way that he did um, in uh, Diamonds in the Mine. So it belongs between Diamonds in the Mine and Famous Blue Raincoat musically and lyrically because it has elements of that singing from Diamonds in the Mine, but it has the quiet music that we need to get us into Famous Blue Raincoat. And I think it's very well placed, whether you're listening to it digitally or in vinyl. I like the sense of how love can twist with time and betrayal. I like the idea of love being undesired but coming regardless. I I find there's a lot of space in Love Calls You By Your Name to find your own love story and understand your own uh, perceptions of love because there are those pleasant and unpleasant moments and you can kind of emphasize the ones that mean most to you at the time. I hadn't really thought about that. That's uh, I'm going to have to go back and listen to the song again. <laughs> I love the line you just mentioned about the dancer and his cane, about how subtle that is and how, because you could just, that's what you can sing because it, it rhymes with the other lines, obviously. And there is that, oh, that's so vicious bitterness to the way he sings. And it didn't really hit me what he meant by the dancer and his cane until later. It was just an image I didn't didn't really process and, and then it's like oh okay why would why would a dancer have a cane? so the first thing i think that always just pops in my head is like you know dancing with like a tots and tails and and a cane is as a uh, as a prop for no reason mm. you know and then just like of course he's not singing about that <laughs> you know he's singing about somebody <laughs> who can no longer dance and that's why he has a cane because he can't walk anymore or something and it's like ugh. <laughs> <laughs> but you see that that goes back to the um the impotence and infertility of diamonds in the mine. It goes back to the frustration and anger at one's own body in dress rehearsal rag. It goes back to the word cripple in avalanche. All of those, this album is incredibly coherent. Every song has references to other ones. Every song has, is either setting something up or, and it, it's rare to find a song, an album that's that tight and coherent lyrically, and um, and and it's something that I really enjoy with that because I discovered a lot of those connections on as we always do on repeated listens rather than the first yeah. time. That brings us on to track six, probably one of his most well-known songs, "Famous Blue Raincoat." Derek, what do you got for me? This is such a powerful song. It's such a powerful image of a relationship that recovered from something that echoes down through the years. And that's a rare image in mainstream media. We're usually taught that an infidelity ends a relationship, damages it irreparably. We're usually taught that there's a single person to blame and depending who the writer is, it's either, you know, the other man's fault or the woman's fault or the husband's fault because he wasn't attentive enough. This song doesn't bother with any of that. It's it's much more true to life. It's it's there was an infidelity, the relationship struggled, the infidelity echoes down through the years, but it survived. It's the thematic sequel 
to last year's man as much as it is connected to Love Calls You By Your Name. Thematically, last year's man with that idea of kind of this peak of emotion and then you have to move on and they found a way to move on. And then from Love Calls You By Your Name, because there's the bitterness and betrayal that is implicit in some of the lines in Love Calls You By Your Name, well, it's explicit in this one. It's absolutely clear. Even as a teenager, I knew there was an infidelity. My favorite moment is that um, I see Jane's awake. She sends her regards. And then there's that pause what can I tell you, my brother, my killer? It, I mean, that just blew me away. Even as a teenager, this song, despite not liking the album, it was one that I recorded onto my cassette on the end of Songs of Leonard Cohen. So when I was listening to it, I would have this song. I think I replaced one of the songs on that album with it because I couldn't make <laughs> them all fit. It remains one of my favorite songs of his, even though I... I perhaps emotionally connect with other ones like Avalanche more strongly. I will always, you know, kind of, if I hear this being played somewhere, I'll always shush people so I can hear it. Yeah, I, it, I really, I'm really impressed. And I, I always have that when I see someone being more true about relationships and what happens and how they survive different things. I love that this is written as a letter. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, this a little bit earlier when he uh, says about, you know, Jane being awake, but he, you know, he even signs it at the end, sincerely L. Cohen. And it's just, it's such a personal song, but uh, this didn't actually take place. And he doesn't quite remember what led him to write this. And, he even wore the blue raincoat when he lived in London. Huh. And the fact that he gave it to another person in this song, I find to be pretty fascinating. The instrumentation just feels so delicate and the guitar is just doing so much work and it's just, it's incredible. And I used to play the song in the classroom. I used it alongside Tom Waits's Martha. Uh, so I, I would play this song and then I would play Martha. And then as an assignment, they had to either... Uh, write a, a letter back to Leonard Cohen, or they had to write a letter back to uh, Tom Waits, I think uh, Tom Frost, as he is in the song, uh, from Martha, uh, because we were doing personal letters. Uh, you know, only two or three students committed suicide per semester. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I kept it fairly close. But, you know, over the years, I had a few students uh, let me know later that they either got into Leonard Cohen or Tom Waits. And so uh, I count that as a huge success. <laughs> I certainly do. And even though I've listened to this song a million times in the classroom, it's it's really retained its power for me. He mentions that it's four in the morning. And I feel like that's a callback, at least a bit to it's, you know, four in the afternoon mm. from dress rehearsal rag. And it just got me thinking about all these connections that are, are throughout this album that I hadn't really even noticed or thought about until you brought them up. So, you know, thank you for that. You know, as you mentioned, I love that he doesn't really, uh, he doesn't blame in, in this song, though he does refer to the person as his killer, uh, which of course is, you know, not necessarily a good thing, but uh, clearly this relationship had troubles before and they came out of this affair better and and stronger and the line uh yes and thanks for the look that you took from her eyes 
I thought it was there for good, so I never tried, is the most devastating line he has ever written. Mm-hmm. When I was uh, I was working at a record store, when I was listening to this song a lot, and I would just write, that line just burrowed itself into my brain, and I would just write it over and over again. And somebody had picked it up and, and read it and was like, whoa. <laughs> and, you know, because oh, that's not that's not me. And, of course, I had to give credit where credit was due. But even really divorced from anything, just that line still had this wow to it. This is just one of my, oh, this is such a good song. And even though, you know, he's doesn't have a golden throat. He's never been that way. Uh, but he's still, he's just the way he uses his voice as an instrument and there's so much going on in the song and the way he puts this together uh, and he's just you know he's my he's my all-time favorite singer so this brings us to sing another song boys uh, which was recorded live from the isle of Wight, and uh, this is one of the few times it really feels like uh, there's a band playing and of course that's because there is actually a band playing uh i really for the first time since diamonds everything else has been basically you know him and a guitar and some strings and you know this is like the full band treatment and of course he was always able to put together you know a real crackerjack band and but because this is an older song and I remember seeing in some early reviews, this is where they felt like he was really running out of gas mm-hmm. and he didn't have a whole lot more to say. I think Rolling Stone even originally gave this a two-star review, uh, which has since been replaced by a five-star review because they do that sometimes. But it just really felt like he didn't have that much more to say. Obviously, that wasn't the case. He had a, a much longer career and um uh, happy for that. Yeah, I really I like this song. This is a this is a fun one. I love how he opens it with the last one's grown old and bitter. And as far as I know, he actually led he led into the song from Famous Blue Raincoat live as well. So that's where that came from. What are your thoughts on this one, Derek? Well, it is of course because it, you have to mention Diamonds in the Mind when you talk about sing another song, song boys because it is it's back to the pub. It sounds like they're in a pub. It certainly doesn't sound like it's on a big stage of any kind. And it has that same salaciousness, uh, that same uh, kind of close-to-bodiness about it. So there's, there's a definitely strong reference going back. I always thought this was recorded in a pub. And when I was... When I was growing up in Ireland, um, we would go out to the West for holidays and there were often um, musicians playing in pubs. And after kind of the close of the concert or or whatever it was, there was often a session where people in the audience would also have brought instruments and just different people would play and, you know, riff off each other and... Um, it was a beautiful thing that I, I got to experience multiple times, kind of seeing people just engage with music so enthusiastically. Uh, and this song always made me think they were in a pub, there was a session, they played this song, they announced it, you know, let's sing another song, boys, this one has grown old and bitter because the people at the session had heard the song before and that was a way of getting them engaged or laughing or, you know, prepared for it. I like comparing how Eaton is 
said here compared to Diamonds in the Mine, where in Diamonds in the Mine, the eating up a lady is, is really salacious and really dirty. But here it's a little more polished. Like maybe there were some younger people in the audience that they didn't want to go too far with that. <laughs> and again, the song has a lot of lyrics about damage to body and reputation. So damage to bodies come up in a few other songs. Damage to reputation could have come up in famous blue raincoat certainly came up in, in, in last year's man. This one has grown old and bitter. Sounds like the mission statement for the whole album. There's a lot of bitterness, as as you pointed out, maybe because he felt like, have I peaked? Can I go on? Or other people were saying, you've peaked, you can't go on. Maybe there's an element of that in that line. But it does to me, because I didn't know about the uh, the reviews or I didn't know what people were thinking about him. And as I say, my father loved this album, even if my mother didn't. So... I always just saw it as a mission statement for the album. It's a it's an album of of with a lot of bitterness. At the same time, there's some real comedy in here. The ignorance of the two characters who are flirting with each other, the the um the daughter of the owner of the the pawn shop, the moment where she waves the Nazi dagger in flirtation. And it opens your eyes to their lack of understanding of the significance of all the items they've used, the microphone and so on, all of these things that they're using without thinking about the people who had them before, why they ended up in, in the possession of this woman's father. Uh, that, that ignorance of theirs is really comedic. And it makes sense if you if you think again of the song being sung in a pub, you can see the audience just getting into those lines and laughing at them. And just how they're all kind of phallic, you know, the dagger and the microphone, and they just they don't know what's going on. That's hilarious. I'd ne- I'd never realized that. I'd never connected the, the the phallicness of the images. You're the worst gay man ever, Derek. <laughs> I am. It's true. I can pass by a banana or an eggplant and I don't even blush. Well, that's, a, that's another conversation <laughs> for another time. Now, you've brought this up a couple of times and I'm curious, what is it about this album that your mom dislikes so much? I think my mother responds very much to lyrics. And I think if lyrics conjure up very unpleasant images, she has a, a kind of a visceral reaction against that. I know, for example, even Love Calls You By Your Name, she doesn't like, which is probably the victim and his stain, your, the ocean and your open vein, images like that. She didn't like Avalanche because it was so dark because of the word cripple. I do know that. So I think overall that the there were so many things in the album that conjured up that unpleasantness. And I mean, it has to be said, it's not untrue to say that the lyrics are unpleasant in many places on this album. Uh, this is a dark album, and I can see why somebody wouldn't necessarily like it. Coming from somebody who was a fan of the first two, uh, this album doesn't come across as being sonically very different, uh, you know, lyrically, I, I guess. But, uh, you know, those first two albums had some pretty dark songs. So There is, but I think this one just goes all out. And Maybe she never made it all the way through. <laughs> I mean, she, she got as far as the end of last year's man, and she's like, I'm done. I'm out. 
<laughs> Jumping out of this one. All right. So that brings us on to our final track, Joan of Arc. Uh, Derek, what are your thoughts? I used to think this one was very sad, but I've come to see the dark humor in it. And again, it has that little essence of, of that um, blackness or bleakness of Scottish and English comedy. That idea of, um, of Joan of Arc kind of being burned alive, but, but still in this love conversation with the, with the fire. I think that's a, an interesting image, and I think there's some dark humor in that to mine. I also see it as a singer at the end of the night. It's a very end of a concert, which makes it perfect for the end of the album. It drifts. Some of the audience are kind of nodding off. Um, there's nothing bombastic about it. Even when the horns come in, they're not bombastic. They're not out of place. They're as gentle as the rest of the music. They complement the mood of it. Um, I think it's the mirror of the end of Sing Another Song, Boys, because the women harmonize. Again, there's women's voices harmonizing, but mm -hmm. they're not harmonizing wildly. They're harmonizing in a very beautiful way where the end of um, Sing Another Song, Boys, can get a little, a little raucous. I like the reference to Last Year's Man, of course, because Joan of Arc appears in Last Year's Man and appears again here. I like the references to relationships that are in all the other songs. In this one, Joan of Arc consents to the relationship. She lets go. There's something, it's not an unconsummated relationship. It's not a damaged relationship. They actually join together consensually. But it also has this theme of resigning yourself to the ending, which perhaps, again, some of the other songs, people were struggling with having to resign to the ending, so they're very bitter. But this one isn't bitter. And again, it, it lets us out of the album with something gentle. It, it kind of brings us down to um, a calmer place. And I think it's a great way to finish. Um, and that simple final note is just, it's just beautiful. It just closes the album. You kind of can, can sit there for minutes or even an hour, just kind of enjoying the silence after that final simple note. Yeah. And Joan of Arc is certainly a totem for when, uh, you know, she, was on the first album on the back cover, uh, Joan of Arc in the in the flames in the in the chains, uh, and I like the as you said, this is a conversation and the fire that would. Mm -hmm. and it's a sad song, uh, and it's a sad song that ends a sad album. Uh, even music is is a bit brighter. It doesn't go out on total down note, and they said there are some some subtle bits of, of humor uh, through this song, uh, and is uh, an acceptance. And like I, I think this is the perfect song to end this album with. It it, it doesn't try to belie anything that that came before you know he doesn't give you this rehearsal rag where the last one ends like oh, not really this album ends with no really uh and i love it i love this and uh it it the the, the music does it is a little bit more buoyant than we've seen on a couple of these tracks so it doesn't fully feel quite as sad as it is and, but just a, a great way a great uh, way to go out on this on this record uh, uh one favorite one of my favorite closers from him what are your final thoughts about this record? I love this record. 
and I think I always will. Ever since I reconnected with it, I have appreciated it. I've re-listened to it and discovered more and more different things about it. Just keeps giving more when you when you let yourself listen to the lyrics. You discover more connections when you let yourself listen to it as it was originally released with the pause between Diamonds in the Mine and Love Calls You by Your Name. You get so interesting things out of that pause. It's a very powerful record, and I think it has a bad reputation because I think a lot of people just just see it as depressing. They just see it as bitter. Um, and I think a lot of people don't see the comedy and they don't see the hope and they don't see the suggestion that you can move on from a bad ending. So I think in some ways, I think people aren't appreciating it as fully as they could. And I'm going to say that with full arrogance because <laughs> it does make me sound like I know better. <laughs> and, and you do. Now, this one spent a lot of time as my favorite uh, Leonard Cohen record. Uh, even though right now I do lean a little bit more towards uh, New Skin for the Old Ceremony, future episode spoiler. I do revisit this album all the time, uh, especially with Avalanche. Like I said, is my one of my is really probably my all time favorite song. Uh, and of course, I have, I have to listen to that a couple of times in a row, and then some, at least one or two other things throughout the album. And uh, but this is one that can that you know that song can still just ring me out emotionally, and. I even I listened to this uh, uh, several times on my honeymoon. Wow! I, I went to Egypt uh, for my honeymoon, and I caught the curse, and uh, I was staying in the room just to relax while my wife went down to the beach, and I wanted to just kind of chill out a little bit, and maybe do some writing, and I ended up listening to that song. I ended up listening to Avalanche like I don't know seven or eight times in a row, uh, and then uh, until I couldn't take it anymore, and then I had to put on some. Uh, crazy pop music or something. I don't even remember what I played. Uh, and then I wrote, took out my, my, my notebook and I wrote something like a thousand words in an hour. And I don't normally write very fast. And it was uh, a continuation of a story that I had contributed with um, a cover story. So it was in the, this, let's say the universe oh. of the uh, opening story and uh, a character that I still occasionally think about turning into a novel but uh, we'll see if that ever happens and what can i say i fucking love this record derek victor uh, uh from partner and and shapeshifter radio uh, i believe you can also be found on twitter at derek handley is that correct that's correct that's my maiden name derek handley <laughs> maiden name great uh thank you so much for joining and we'll talk to you next time thank you for having me goodbye